There's two things there that I've learned about myself. Is one, I do find it helpful to wade towards the difficult things through writing. It writing itself enables me to get close to those things in a safer way than other ways of dealing with things. So there is that, but also that I temper the closeness that I have to the difficult things with humour. That is how I cope with life. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Rights for Women. It is Monday, eighteenth of September, as I'm recording this intro. And this week's episode is a interview between Meredith Jaffe, who is guest hosting again on the podcast, and Carrie Cox. So I'm really excited to bring this episode to you. Meredith is always a fabulous interviewer, and Carrie is a very ex- experienced writer. This is her third novel, I think, storylines that they are talking about. And she's also written a number of non-fiction books. So it's a great chat between two experienced authors all about the writing biz. So that's coming up very soon. Uh, Writing-wise, a little bit of an update. I'm just continuing drafting my novel Out of the Ashes. And that's coming along, not quite as fast as it should be, but I will be signing off after this and getting back into some new words And I'm trying to do some writing each day and aiming for 10,000 words this week. So that is my challenge. Hopefully by this time next Monday, a week away, I will have added another 10,000 words to my draft. I'm just sitting here with one eye on the corner of my caravan where I'm recording this because a great big huntsman up in the corner and I'm a spider phobic and I'm going to have to get rid of it. But anyway, wish me luck with that. This week's writing tip is something I've been doing for the last week and that is if you get stuck like really stuck and you're not sure where the next part of your plot should go you've got a few ideas in your head but you're not sure how to structure it or where to put it of course you can just keep going if you've got plenty of time you can just keep going and write and see where it goes and where it takes you and just let the words take care of themselves and then you can work it out later If you want to work to a little bit more of a structure or have a little bit more of an idea where you're going, sometimes it's good to dip into a writing craft book. Now, the problem that I have had recently is just fine-tuning the turning points and particularly as I'm getting towards the kind of 75% and 80% mark of the book, working out what scenes need to go where as I'm getting toward that last third of the book. And, of course, the tension and the pace has to be increasing at that point. The reader wants to be well and truly on the the treadmill and have it getting faster and faster as we careen, hopefully, towards the end, regardless of what genre you write, really, unless you are writing very slow, beautiful literary fiction that might not have uh, such an important emphasis put on structure and plotting. 
Uh, for me, I decided to dip into a book called The Anatomy of Story. Now, this was actually recommended. I, it's, it's a book that I've heard about many times, uh, but for some reason I've never purchased it to put it on my writing shelf, even though I have many other books on writing and I do reference, dip into them every now and then as needed. And Natasha Lester actually mentioned in a recent post on Instagram that she had referred to The Anatomy of Story when she was a little bit stuck at a certain point in her most recent book that she's writing. So I thought, yeah, I need some help with kind of structure. Anyway, I bought The Anatomy of Story and I'm just working my way through it in bits, a chapter or two at a time, and then stopping and then going back and thinking about my story that I'm working on in relation to what I've just read. And I have to say that it has already really helped me to push forward with the story and to push forward with the structure. One of the big points that I have picked up from it is working out what the main action of your character is in the story. So what is the main thing that your character has to do in order to become the person that they want to become and that you want them as the the author of the story to become at the end? So they start off as a certain person with particular weakness There is some action they have to take which will transform them in a way into the character that they become at the end of the book. So that action could be asking for help. It could be confronting someone standing up for themselves. It could be looking into the family history. It could be going on a road trip. So whatever the action is, it has to be something that they're doing. It has to be active. And that act which increases as the story continues. So they do very little of it or none of it at the beginning. And then as they realise that things have to change, they start to take on this action, this particular action that then propels them forward in the story and is the action that will result in them finding success at the end and becoming that person. So that's been a really key tip for me, picking that up. And again, look, these are often things that we already know, but it's great to have a reminder or to hear them in a different form as you read a new writing craft book or listen to a video or do a workshop. or So I guess the tip really is if you get stuck, seek help in some way, shape or form, whether that be in the form of talking it out with a friend, referring to a writing craft book, watching a video, listening to a podcast and seeing if there's some way that you can apply what you're hearing and what you're reading to your own writing. So that's my tip for the week. That's something that's really helping me at the moment. So I'm about to head back now and after I get rid of this huntsman with my copy of The Anatomy of Story in front of me, my copy of the manuscript, applying a little bit more to what I've got and then moving forward into the next phase of the story. And another quick reminder that I do have a course coming up that's starting on the 4th of October online, Turn Up the Tension. Uh, It's all about increasing the conflict, tension and pacing in your writing so that your book is a page turner that people are going to want to keep reading it. There is so much packed into this course that runs over eight weeks. You get a weekly Zoom call, you get access to a closed Facebook group, you get lifetime access, and it is all there and you can find out about it at pamelacook.com.au. There's still a few places available. If you're thinking about it, pop onto the website, register now, and you can pay in one or two instalments, and I would love to have you on the course for turning up the tension. So have a great writing week, everyone. Enjoy this episode of Rights for Women with Meredith Jaffe speaking to Carrie Cox. And I'll be in your ears once again next Friday. 
Hello, my name is Meredith Jaffe and I'm pleased to be taking over the Convo Couch here at Rights for Women again quite a few times this year as one of the guest presenters and doing one of my all-time favourite things which is to interview fellow authors and today my very special guest is Carrie Cox. Carrie is a journalist and an author based in Perth, Western Australia. She has published a non-fiction book, You Take the High Road and I'll Take the Bus, which is based on her weekly satirical column, Carry On, which ran for 10 years and was syndicated into six newspapers. She's also had two previously written novels prior to the one we're talking about today, Afternoons with Harvey Beam and So Many Beats of the Heart. Her latest novel is Storylines, which I've described because I got to puff quote it as an impossible beautiful novel that delicately balances the joy and pain of what it is to be human. Carrie Cox, congratulations on Storylines and welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Meredith, and thanks very much for having me. I love the podcast. I listen all the time. (laughs) That'll be music to Pam's ears. Let's start at the beginning in a way. You're a journalist by trade. How did you come to pick that as your career in your early days? It was a long time ago, but I only ever really had one skill and one love, and that was it's not really a skill, it's a thing, and that's words. I was a really voracious reader as a child, encouraged by a grandma who was a a big reader and a volunteer at the library. She would take me to the library with her and I'd hang out for hours amidst all these stories. So I found that stories really transported me to great places from a very young age and I dreamed about writing my own. When you're at school and if you do all right in English back in those days, the guidance counsellor would recommend that you probably do journalism, which back then was still a viable trade. (laughs) and and a good one and it was sound it was it sounded a lot more sure than saying I might just write books no guidance counsellor or parent was recommending that so that just wasn't even an option so it, it sat with me for several decades as an unscratched itch it took me a long time to actually venture into fiction but I loved journalism and I still do even though the landscape has changed so much it's hard to get your head around But the currency of journalism remains stories and human stories, and that's still what motivates me. And I I loved my career and still and have no regrets about not actually, to be honest, I do regret not writing fiction earlier. And I do say to other young writers that I meet now, don't wait. I thought I had to wait till I was 40 to have some license to tell a story. There was some critical mass of life experience before you were allowed to say anything. And I don't think that's actually true at all. And the best, some of the best writing I've read in recent years have been from young people. Totally. I totally agree. And I'm like you, I wish I had not listened to the inner voice saying don't. I'm also curious how you came to be writing a weekly column and 10 years is a really long time for column writing. So how did the column come about? One of the first newspapers I worked at was in my hometown of Mackay and there was a newspaper called the Daily Mercury. It's now defunct, which is very sad. And they had an editor there for a couple of years who was ex-Sydney, so he had some big ideas to throw upon this rusty old newspaper, one of which was having its first column. And I don't know whether I put my hand up or whether he tapped me on the shoulder because I was full of opinions, but um, somehow he gave me a chance. 
And he said to me, okay, you have to write six columns before I'm going to give you this gig. I need to read. He just wanted to know that I had more than six opinions in me and also that I could write in a column style and I didn't even know if I could. I gave it a go and he was happy enough and that became the column and then that was after a couple of years run in cystic publications of the Daily Mercury, so other regional newspapers within the APN network it was back then. And thank God that was before the era of social media. I would not write a column now. I'm not sufficiently emotionally robust to be putting out a a personal unsolicited opinion every week and then wait for everyone to pile onto it. So it was, we got the occasional letter to the editor. (laughs) That was it. It was nice and safe. But parallel to that, when I started working in magazines, I was also given a column by Practical Parenting magazine called Womb with a View. And that ran for several years as well. And that was a lot of fun too, to be able to skewer parenting, to be really honest about just how bloody difficult it is. (laughs) Sure thing. And did you find, was it around the time that those things were winding up that you started to turn your eye to fiction? Or what was the sort of the stepping stone between journalism and fiction writing? It wasn't like I stopped the column and thought, oh, I need a new outlet where I get to write in a more creative voice. There were years and years between that happening. I think when I finally decided to write fiction, it was the story itself. The story was which became Afternoons with Harvey Bean. That story sat with me, that character sat with me until, as writers would know, it, it gets to the point where you think I've got to do something with this because it's in my head a lot and it's growing and taking shape and so the story led me to think maybe I'll give this a go in a very private speculative way (laughs) not knowing whether having mainly done um, short news articles and feature articles for 25 years I definitely had no confidence in being able to carry through the narrative arc of a novel even though I read a lot of them and have always read a lot of them it's a, and that's very helpful. It's a very difficult, different thing to try and write that kind of length or that sort of volume or arc yourself when you're so used to short deadlines and also to be setting your own deadlines. I'm so used to having people set deadlines for me and I'm very good. I must say at keeping them. I'm terrified of them, so I keep them. But then when you impose them on yourself, it's a different thing because it's just you and you can pretty much ignore it if you want to. So I did it in a really quiet way and until I had about 35,000 words written of Harvey Beam and I had no idea whether it was any good at all, honestly no idea. And so I remember going to a panel at a Perth Writers' Festival that had three publishers talking to a large audience of wannabe writers about how you do this thing and how you get published. And I remember there were two publishers from the East Coast. They were basically throwing up all the reasons why you shouldn't have great expectations about getting published. And fair to call to them. They were managing expectations, but it was disheartening, I must say. And then this third publisher who was from Fremantle Press over here in Perth took a very different view and their the tone of their delivery was we want your stories. Yes, we won't just publish anything. You still have to make a certain grade, but bring us your stories. Also, at that point in time, I don't think it's still the case. They said, we will read 
30,000 words. We don't have to read a full manuscript. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is great. I could just quietly email them this. And if it's rubbish, I will not have to finish it. <laughs> and I won't waste another 40,000 words. Great. What a good deal. So I emailed it off to them and waited a long time, actually. And then I got a call one day at work. And they and Fremantle Press said, look, we really this character, Harvey Beam, please send us the rest. And I thought, I said, oh, my God, thank you, great. And I thought, Jesus, there is no rest. <laughs> I have to write the rest really fast while they're still interested. So that was the motivation to, to finish the novel and to send it, and it ultimately got published. But it's a reminder, and I think all writers would agree with this, especially early on in your career, to have it, it's so riddled with self doubt to have a glimmer of encouragement, and that's what Fremantle Press provided to me halfway through that book is so important. It's such a lonely space to be in when you're just thinking you're working on this very big, time consuming thing and you have no idea whether it's any good at all. And what's interesting about your, that story as well is like you're saying, oh, well, fiction writing is completely different to journalism, but I've done columns as well. And you've got to admit that that discipline of meeting deadline, of doing a certain word count a day or whatever the parameters are that are put around you, is helpful for writing, putting the bum in, in the seat. I think Diana sure. Rossi calls it bum glue. Yeah. So actually sit down and go, it doesn't matter if you don't have an idea and you're not feeling the inspiration, you've got to bang out this thing. <laughs> Absolutely. There are so many times that you would know when you have to write a column and you've, it's just a week where you there's nothing floating around up there. There's nothing inspiring you. There's nothing making you angry or there's nothing amusing you and you've got other things on and you're just not in the right headspace. But you know what? That deadline's not going anywhere. And so that is, that is in my DNA is that you just have to keep touching the work. You have to try and keep it moving forward even when you're not feeling the love. Totally. Let's talk. turn to Storylines, the reason we're here today. Storylines is your third novel, and I guess a nice place to start with this conversation is what the inspiration was for the story. The inspiration was very much a period of ruminating on several themes. When I say themes, they're elements of the human condition that sort of had me thinking and pondering for a period and what tends to happen with me is once I ponder something long enough and explore it I need to start writing something to make sense of it so the themes were one was an idea of aesthetic beauty what was interesting to me was that I sometimes feeling a bit philosophical I was thinking so many things can be called beautiful like a landscape can be beautiful a person can be beautiful a painting can be beautiful so are there actually elements common to these things that do quantify or define beauty is beauty an actual is it a real thing not just an idea or a subjective construct and when you do look at some of the philosophy around that it's really fascinating also I think that we are becoming arguably a more aesthetically driven world because of social media and my, my kids spend they live their lives on their phone and everything's visual. Everything is reflected to you about life in some sort of image or video in your phone. And a lot of those are, you know, curated and heavily curated and distorted. We live in an era of distortion. We have supermodels putting filters on themselves. It's a And I wonder to what extent this distortion of aesthetic beauty affects the way we see ourselves, our self-perception and the way we see others. 
So that was fascinating me for a bit. I suppose from a personal point of view, like most women or like most people, I don't wake up in the mornings world ready. <laughs> There's a bit of a process involved to make me palatable to this world that does actually judge people on appearances. And in recent years, I've had some quite significant cancer scars cut off my face that I choose to cover, not particularly well, but it's a little routine that I do each day. And when I really am honest with myself about why I do that, because it's actually quite tedious and it takes up time that you don't have and that I'm running out of, it's not vanity. It's 100% not vanity. It is all about being able to walk in the world and have conversations with people and not have that, have physical scars become a distraction to what I love, which is just genuine human connection and conversation. It's always meant so much to me. And so that was part of it as well. Like I thought, what if I amplified that and created this character that really had something really significant to hide and how does that affect the way she navigates the world? The other theme that I was ruminating over was that idea of vulnerability which has become an emotional buzzword, I think, in recent years. We bang on a lot about vulnerability. Show your vulnerability. Just be more vulnerable. And it's a nice concept, but I think it's a blunt instrument. I think that just because you're ready to hold up your pain to the world doesn't mean the world's going to be kind en masse, especially in the world of social media that we live in. You need to be, I think vulnerability needs to be nuanced and a little bit strategic. You need to be confident about the people to whom you show yourself and the forums in which you show yourself and the platforms and the message so that you can receive kindness. And the third theme was just the idea of storytelling being an emotionally healing device. I believe that this the currency of my life and journalism and your life is stories, but I started to think beyond them as just these things that we tell each other and then being something a little deeper, an actual means of emotional connection that be, can be quite healing. And so I did a lot of research around that and found some really great studies to show that is the case. I was interested to listen recently to a podcast by a woman who teaches stand-up comedy, comedy being a form of storytelling, and she won a grant to teach stand-up comedy to dementia patients. And I was really intrigued because my, my mother has dementia. We're really looking at ways to keep her life as full as it can be while it can be and to keep her communicating and telling her stories because she's a great storyteller. And apparently she ran this course and one of the stars of the course was this quite elderly lady who really loved the comedy. You hand her a prop and she'll deliver a funny line. And when her family came to, to come and see a performance, they were completely gobsmacked and shocked because this woman apparently had been mute for years. And it was this storytelling that had unlocked her. And I think that's true. I think that stories unlock stories. These three things were rolling around and I, what I tried to do in the end was create a story that would allow me to weave those themes together, allow me to travel to each of them back and forth. And I didn't know if that was going to be possible, but I gave it a red hot go. That's such a great answer. It leads perfectly into my next question. So the story centres around a character called Nessa and she has a rundown old homestead that has been gifted to her by her father. 
that she turns into a sort of wellness retreat, although you'd have to say at the beginning of the novel that she's not exactly committed to running this wellness retreat. First of all, I just wanted to start with landscape. So I wanted to start with, is this a real place that you based it on? And because it felt very real on the page. And can you also describe to us why this place is important to Nessa before we actually meet Nessa? Thank you very much for saying it felt very real because I I haven't traditionally written place in a very deliberate way and and, and I didn't know if I'd be particularly good at it. But it did become, once I had the idea of having this homestead by a dam, I, I did have a picture in my mind and it was a conflation of three or four locations in the south of Perth that that have a dam, that have a rundown home. Not one particular place, but several amalgamated places. But very quickly, and that, and this is the beauty of writing, isn't it? When you write about place, it, just the process of writing can make it start to feel very real. And actually, I have a very good friend who's a visual artist. She's a very good painter. And she was one of the first beta readers of this book, the manuscript. And she took it upon herself to, to paint Nevada, this wellness retreat, as she saw it in her eye. And when she showed me the painting, I was just blown away by how close it was to how I'd imagined it. And then I'm probably not too reliable in that sense because I'm too close to the work, but I showed my husband too, who had also read the book, and he said, oh, my, this Carrie, this is exactly how I pictured Nevada. And I thought, that's great because I, I clearly I have been able to paint a picture with words that is believable. And so why a wellness retreat? Why was this important to the book? Nessa wasn't committed to it. It was give, This was a property given to her by her father that she felt obligated to do something with. But she already had created a life where she could successfully put a wedge between herself and the world. So technically, she could have stayed in that life and just continued to live life at arm's length. But I guess that's a pretty boring book and it's a pretty boring life. So she did this sort of, with her sister's encouragement, she did this kind of initially half baked approach to fashioning a wellness retreat and having no knowledge how to do it so it becomes this sort of cobbled together red dot retreat (laughs) and and what a great retreat can do not that I've been to many of them is that yes it's lovely to have yoga and massages and sound healing and all that that's all lovely but what a really great retreat can deliver is this unexpected connection with complete strangers who are also at the same point in time looking for something they're running from something hiding from something or they just need a break and you can have these unexpected unscripted conversations and moments of connection that could not happen any other way and that is what Nessa inadvertently creates and in doing so she suddenly finds herself in an environment in a setting where she can perhaps no longer keep the world at arm's length. So I was trying to create something that like that tested her. Yeah, and I think it's a really important part of the plot too. So when we talk about writing, we often, it's really important to remember that whatever landscape you create for your story is an active participant in the story mm. and impacts, I think, on character. We're going to come back to that point. I think it's time we met Nessa. So we've got Nessa is, just describe Nessa for us and what, she's hiding from the world. So this is a, I pictured her as a 35-year-old woman who is the survivor of a tragic accident, the nature of which reveals itself later in the book. But so she carries with her significant facial scars as a result of that accident. 
To what extent they are as bad as she thinks? We're not 100% sure. This is a first-person narrative, and it's the first time I've written a first-person narrative. That was an interesting test for me as a writer, but what it enabled me to do was to play around with that idea of, of reliability of what you're being told, and also that sort of correlates with that idea of self-perception and how reliable it is in, a, in the world that we live in today that is so distorted in, in the way we project visual images. Nessa, yes, is a woman whose life has irrevocably changed and her means of coping and continuing to live in the world that she now sees as hers is that is just to, to she has shrunk the orbit of her life to something very small. She has her family, basically, which is her sister, who she has a very interesting, close, complicated relationship with, her niece, Lily, who is her sister's daughter, her parents, one of whom is dying, and she has she works in an aged care home. That is her primary job before the wellness retreat took off. And she has a colleague there called Campbell, and they have an interesting friendship. And he probably doesn't realise that actually he's her only friend. What I found, and I'm late to the party on this, but is that writing in the first person made me know this character so much faster than any other character I've written. It is a great device for doing that. You get that, you nail the voice and that feels real much earlier. That was my experience. That's so interesting. As you said earlier, you're also drawing on personal experience with some scars that you've got on your body, on your face. I was wondering in terms of the writing, was that something that you pushed yourself to the edge to get deeper and deeper onto the emotional plane of Nessa or was that something that you had to step away from to get perspective on her behaviours and her feelings and to, and as really effectively body dysmorphia. Like how did the writing process of that work for you when it partly is a deeply personal story? You're drawing on personal story to, to populate or to form a character. I think there's two things there that I've learned about myself. Is One, I do find it helpful to wade towards the difficult things through writing it, writing itself enables me to get close to those things in a safer way than other ways of dealing with things. So there is that, but also that I temper the closeness that I have to the difficult things with humour. That is how I cope with life. I am always the person to make the inappropriate joke at a funeral. It's just me. And I think that Nessa, I've gave, given her and her sister that similar sense of humour, a little bit self-deprecating, a little bit inappropriate at times because it is, for all its flaws, a very helpful coping device. Mm, interesting. So I was wondering too, in the era that we live in writing where so many manuscripts are run through the lens of a sensitivity reader, mm. did you, and I've read a couple of things lately where I was surprised that they went through a sensitivity reader because that person had lived experience. Did you feel or did your publisher feel that you needed to also run it by someone who had similar experiences to Nessa? I'd already made it clear that in the in researching the book, I had done a lot of that work in making sure that I had spoken to people with whom this is a very, re, like for people whom this has been, a, they've had a traumatic 
experience that has impacted them physically, whether it be a physical disability, not necessarily a facial disability. I I contacted organisations, there's one in the UK in particular, that is just about people living with serious scarring and looked at a lot of their resources, a lot of their real-life case studies. So my, my publisher was confident, and because also the last book I had written had a character with a disability, and I was very careful about research, researching that re- responsibly and with real people and with an inch of its life, I think they know that I do take that responsibility very seriously. And also because I come from a journalistic background, researching your topic, it just becomes I would never write about anything that I hadn't already done the work on. So this one didn't go through a sensitivity reader. The last one did, but I think it's because the publisher was already confident that I was not approaching this in any kind of flippant or an uneducated way. So I wanted to touch back on a character you just talked about before, and that's Lily, who's uh, Ness's niece. She plays a very important role in the story in terms of the plot and in in terms of that mirror, as you're talking about, reflecting back on Nessa, perhaps a different or distorted reality to the way Nessa sees the world. As you said about your own teens, and my teens are the same, obsessed with their phones, Mm. over-obsessed with social media-type platforms. What were you thinking about when you are creating Lily? So I wanted to look at someone who could could similarly have a self-perception problem or a self-perception issue without necessarily having something like what Nessa is living with. That's that that a distorted self-perception can exist in anyone and it's more likely these days because of the social contrast social constructs around us that we've created and I guess I'm hashtag social media predominantly but in many ways every part of life is more visual these days and more snap decision making you know about making instant decisions about someone's value or worth based on an image and what a difficult environment to grow up in as a young person it is it's saturated. It is the way they live. So I wanted to have a young character who has literally grown up from day dot in that sort of setting and and actually views herself as, uh, in her words, hideous. And it's clear to the reader that she's not. So there's, I guess, if you want to put a label on it, it's body dysmorphic disorder. And when I did some research on that, the rates of diagnosis of that in recent years have grown exponentially. So there's something going on there that I wanted to explore and I wanted to set up this relationship between Nessa, who has no children of her own, with Lily and how and set up the way in which they might be able to impact each other and challenge each other about what you really look like and how you really feel about yourself. And And and, how much it really matters, I think, as well, you know, that, that, that we sometimes and this is also part of social media, but all of us sometimes put way too much weight on what other people think of us than what we feel our own worth is. And I think both Nessa and Lily in the novel are both battling with coming to terms with accepting who they are, Yeah, uh, not literally warts and all, but, yeah, that it's that they, in a way Lily drives action but also she drives and she drives healing, but she drives it's reciprocal, isn't it, between Nessa and Lily. That was my intent. I'm glad that's the takeaway. I think their relationship is really important, but it's an example of the bigger theme of the book, which is around how certain connections with people can be completely transformative and life-changing. 
and to shut yourself off from those connections in the way that Nessa had originally done, had done for so long deprives you of a life that could be so much richer. And that leads perfectly into one of my favourite characters, the lovely Hannah. Who is she to Nessa? So Hannah is in the aged care home in which Nessa works. She calls them her the residents there. She calls them the lovelies because she she's very good with them and she's a genuine empathic person who who gives more than she more of her time than she's paid to to really connect with these people for whom life has become very small and i guess she can identify with that because her life is very small too and i think in that setting too i think some hannah is her favorite lovely she would admit that she's formed a very special relationship with her and one in which i think nessa feels that Hannah sees the real her and that she can, she's very safe in that environment. There's no judgment and their conversations are just very rich and real and and it's very much a two-way street. Hannah tells great stories and Nessa saves up stories to tell Hannah. So they have this that, that currency of storytelling that I think is healing for them both, but particularly for someone like Hannah who is spending life, the remainder of her life in a nursing home with very few visitors. And I know people who are doing that and it's very it makes me very sad. But I think it's also really important in terms of what your themes and your plot is, is that Hannah pulls her weight as a character. And I guess that's what we're talking around with all these different characters. Hannah pulls her weight because she is at an age where questionably society says she's past it, she's she's no longer beautiful. There's all that kind of there's a sort of some really negative storylines that put pardon the pun that are put out about becoming old and not negating the beauty and the wisdom and the lived experience of Mm. older people. To me, when I was reading Hannah, apart from the fact she's delightful, she's really alive on the page and she brings a lot of humour to the story as well, is that I felt that you're also talking about beauty from an old person's perspective. Is that that what you're trying to do? Absolutely. I'm generalising, but as a society, we more or less project invisibility onto these people, or at least the idea that the way you look now is beside the point or redundant. And I know my mother, for example, she still wants to look nice when she goes out. She wants to feel, and I don't mean that in a shallow way at all, because this is all of this, all of this talk around aesthetic and beauty and the way we look, none of it is about is coming at it from a shallow point of view. It's about how you feel about yourself and how you walk in the world and therefore how the world treats you. And my mum still wants to be treated with respect and dignity. She wants people to find her stories funny because she's always been very funny. And I just feel I'm very careful to make sure mum still feels very visible and that I say things like, oh, my God, I love when you put your hair up, mum, or I love those earrings, or I say as much of that as I do about how funny her stories are because I think none of that society might be projecting the idea that's faded or gone. I know my mum is still a 15-year-old girl inside a 75-year-old body and I think my mother-in-law is the same. When you talk to them, they're like, I don't know how this happened, Carrie. Somehow I got old but I am I know who I am still in me and I still have a crush on Gavin, the boy across the road from when I was 15. It's so true. So I was captured this sense of just preserving the essence of a person even though the shell is fading, you, you know, that there is a life inside that is still rich and full. 
And the other character that we just need to touch on, if ever so briefly, because he's there are more than female characters in this story. And Campbell, of course, is a very important one. As you said before, he works at the nursing home with Nessa and also looks after the lovelies. He, I think he brings two really important elements to the story, again, going back to heavy lifting with characters. One is the storytelling that he, he wants to run and does run at the nursing home. But the other one is how he perceives Nessa and how his philosophical take on what beauty is a really important part of developing your story too, isn't it? Absolutely. And he grew out of the, I was talking about when I was ruminating on these themes and I was going down a rabbit hole of looking at the philosophical history of ideas about what is beauty. And in doing that, I, I, that sort of thinking became the embodiment of this character called Campbell. And he was a small character at first and then he grew because I really liked his kookiness. He's just a bit of an oddball and I love people like that. I just love people who look at almost everything in a kind of a unexpected left field or third eye kind of way with those people who you're in a room, you can, you can, sometimes you can be at meetings at work and it's, you're talking about something really it is ridiculous, but everyone's getting quite passionate about it. And then it takes this other, this one person to present that third eye view and look down and go, guys, this is ridiculous. Let's, you know, let's get real here. Look at the big picture. I love those people. And I think Campbell is that person. And he, once Nessa gains, you know, or has his trust and trusts him, she allows herself to, to let him into her orbit. And that connection becomes very special because, as we all know, having a really a close friend that really gets you and loves you for all your flaws, like that's just, see, I'm getting emotional. That is, to me, the most important thing in the world. Absolutely. And I just think it's we've spent a lot of time on character because it is a character-driven novel. But then I wonder, too, that in that initial phase, the first drafty or even pre-first draft kind of phase of it, was it the story that was coming to you or was it these wonderful characters that you created? Yeah, very much the characters. I had a, a rough idea of where I wanted to head and I think I could say with all three books that I've written, I have had a probably a 60% idea plot-wise of where I'm going to land. Like I've got a, it's not a fully formed plan at all. And it's about 50, 60%. And that's enough for me to trust that the rest will come in the writing process. And so far, that has been my experience. And so with each book, I've felt more confident that, okay, I can keep pushing through with these characters and some some obvious or not so obvious resolutions will present themselves. But yeah, a lot about where this ended up did happen in, in the process itself because as and if anyone is not a writer will know how ridiculous it sounds but if you're a writer that's once you get to know your characters well enough they will tell you where this story needs to go oh totally and i think that from character is where you get emotional connection with reader as well so it is really mm. important to have authentic character on the page the other thing you touched on earlier which i think is really important in this particular novel but i think it's a really good take-home message for, for writers and budding writers is the importance of humour in storytelling, particularly when you're dealing with difficult subject matter or darker subject matter. What do you think that humour gives your storytelling that you feel your novels would lack without it? And I guess I'm not talking about the laugh <laughs> so much as but the, the mechanics of humour in, in writing. I think 
it's you're right it's not just about making people smile or laugh to take some of the sting out of the harder things i use humor for rhythmic purposes too i find that when you're reading your work back sometimes you get a sense of where there needs to be some lightness and it doesn't have to be a haha moment it can just be a more subtle moment of levity and you get it in life too when things when you just the room's a bit heavy and we've all been talking about dark things for a while and something needs to happen, someone needs to trip over or something. <laughs> I just, I find that, yeah, it's very, I find it intuitively it works for me when I need to moderate the rhythm on the page. I was just going to say that I think it's a pacing issue as well, isn't it, that when you're looking, mm. particularly in the reviewing process when you're editing, is to look at it and go, where are my beats on this page? Is it mm. moving too fast? Is it moving too slowly? Does it need to break the cycle? Does it need a sprinkle mm. of fairy dust in it just to take it to another level, doesn't it? And comedy humour can work really well. And as we said, not necessarily a gag, but it can just be yeah. a miscommunication. It can be a whole lot of things. And also it's critical to the relationship between Nessa and her sister. They have this thing that they send to each other each every day or so. It's called Pun Hub and actually a very good, it's on Instagram, and a very good friend of mine back from school days introduced me to it. And even though this old school friend of mine and I, we don't live in the same city anymore and we don't, we would never have communicated daily in the way that we do now if we hadn't found this thing called Pun Hub to send each other every day. And so all of a sudden our relationship has become much more regular because of this little device. And so I use it between the sisters to keep that connection, even when we know as the story progresses that things are awry in their relationship. The pun hub, that sending of each other, the message each day or most days, just becomes this, this touchstone between them that says things are really bad, but we still love each other totally there's some of you writing the acknowledgements which i thought was hilarious no offense <laughs> but you have this wonderful line that says it's embarrassingly true that i reach the end of each novel with zero idea of what i have produced is this just messy first draft syndrome or is this something else no this is something else i wish i knew <laughs> what it was but it is it's like a it's so true and it is embarrassing but i'm going to be honest about it i Genuinely, I'm like an experimental chef, I think, I'm, and I'm throwing all these ingredients together with lots of intent and purpose and effort. It's not just like the Swedish chef and the Muppets. I'm trying very hard to make a good meal in an experimental way. But at the same time, when it's all finished, I it's like I hold up a spoon to, to a friend and say, taste this. And it, I would be equally surprised if they loved it or hated it. Either of those possibilities are possible in that moment. I just don't, I wish I had more confidence and command over what I'm doing in the process so that you would get to the end of it and go, this is great. <laughs> but maybe the uncertainty is an important part of it because that's like the tightrope walking of it, that if you're not taking mm -hmm. risks, if you're not willing to fall, then you also won't write anything True. Of great heart either. Yeah, maybe. I've just learned to accept it now. I've learned to not be afraid of it to, because otherwise it is scary to be sitting there spending all these hours and days working on this thing and knowing that you might get to the end and literally have no idea if you've made a terrible casserole or a fantastic meal. 
<laughs> so does this mean that you're a pantser? What for you, the process of getting a novel from that messy first draft to a fit enough shape to hand into your agent or your publisher, is that is that a multiple copy polishing process? You don't live in that state of embarrassment, surely, <laughs> for the entire novel editing process as well. No, I think I'm a... Between, I'm a planter, I guess. I'm a 60% plotter, 40% let it happen. And that's just how I am, even though I feel like I'd be much, I'd have a much more stable mindset if I just plotted things out. But it just doesn't work for me that way. So, no, I, but I am a very slow writer. And I think all my years of journalism have meant that I'm terrified of sub-editors. I don't want a sub-editor to rip my stuff to shreds because it, and I've been a sub-editor and I know the power that comes with that to just go, ah, it's rubbish. I, that terrifies me. So I make sure that the version I send to, to you know, my agent is as polished as it can be. And so if they were to come back and say, it isn't really working, it's it wouldn't be because the writing is bad. It's bec- it would be something fundamental with the story itself. There would be some or a character that didn't quite work. But what I hand over, I, I'm, I'm pretty careful about every aspect of sentence structure, grammar, punctuation. That's the journalist in me. Because I think if you make it cleaner, they're more likely to feel the characters than to be stumbling across poorly structured sentences. I think handing in clean copy, to borrow that phrase from journalism, but I'm the same, I think handing in clean copy at least allows the story to show on the page Mm, and not mm -hmm. distract the reader, in this case the editor or the agent, by annoying stuff that should have been cleaned up. They're not going to be distracted by minutia when you really Mm -hmm. want them to tell you, is this character app properly developed? Have I got a plot hole? Yes. Is this the best structure for this story? All the the really big, important building blocks of the story will get lost if you hand in a mess, won't they? Absolutely. That, and look, when I say I'm a slow writer, the other thing I do is that I I only ever read back the last thousand words I did, and then I and I polish those each day, and then I move forward. I never go back to the right all the way to the beginning during the writing process. So I am I'm finessing the words a thousand words at a time and so I listen to a lot of podcasts with writers talking about process and they talk about doing x number of drafts and that never quite makes sense to me or it doesn't speak to me because I think I only ever do one draft but I'm finessing it all the way along I would never write I couldn't can't picture myself writing 80,000 words at pace and then going back and then rewriting or restructuring it all or putting new characters in. I love that some writers can do that, but I couldn't do that. Yeah, hell to you because I'm not a one drafter. <laughs> we all have stuff that comes easily to us and stuff that we struggle with. And I think as you, the more novels you write or the more stories you write, the clearer it becomes. And also the more editorial feedback you get, the clearer it becomes what you're good at and what you really need to work mm-hmm. on. And everyone mm-hmm. has a different answer for this as well. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot now and go, when, what are you conscious of when you're in that writing process or reading through process that you know that you tend to, be a bit light on or you need to put more effort into is it character dialogue landscape structure plot what's it for you historically it's been landscape and place and so that's what I really tried to work on this time and so I do I try to make it that when I when a deficiency is made 
aware is made clear to me about something that I need to work on I work on it immediately so that it doesn't become just this defining thing oh Carrie's not very good at landscape so I've tried to better that in terms of what I would work on so what I think I am probably I'm, I play it too safe in terms of structure and form that is certainly something I'm now aware of that I've probably played it safe three times now. And so the next novel that I'm working on, I'm challenging myself to have, for example, multiple points of view and two timelines and also a kind of kooky thing where I'm toying with a bit of writing from the afterlife. Yeah, I'm conscious of my deficiencies, even and especially the ones that I point out myself because <laughs> I'm my worst critic or harshest critic, and so I try to work on those things. But I think it's also something you also just touched on. It is really important to approach each novel with a fresh sensibility and, mm. and try different things. That, and it may or may not work and it may not serve the story best, but it doesn't mean it's wasted time because at no. least you've eliminated that process or whatever as the right way to tell that story. It's not, there isn't one way of doing any of this stuff. It's what best serves story, isn't it? For sure. And so this time I thought to myself, yeah, with storylines, I thought I'm going to have a go at writing in the first person because I haven't done that before and see and test myself in that way. And very early on, I realised this is actually the only way to write this particular story, that I could not have written this story in close third person or any other way. So I was lucky in that respect. I made a choice to try something and then realised that, yeah, in uncharacteristically of me, it was the right choice. (laughs) There's many a story where people are told, do you want to try writing this in a different third person, first person, whatever. With your writing life, how do you structure that? Do you have to squeeze writing in through other activities? Do you have a dedicated time of day that you can write, a dedicated space? What's um, your writing life look like these days? I've always had to squeeze it in around paid work. And in the last couple of years, for the first time, I've stopped working full-time and started working part-time. So that has given me more writing time, but I still, yeah, definitely need to work. And I am a morning writer. I used to be very superstitious about where I wrote to the point where it was a bit paralyzing. And I, so the first story, the first book I wrote in a library and didn't think I could write it anywhere else, became very superstitious about taking my laptop off to the library each day. For the second one, which was written in COVID, I wrote it in a friend's co-working space that was all COVID safe and became superstitious about writing anywhere else. And what happened with storylines is that I finally got over this weird superstition I had and taught myself to write at home. Even when I am here with all the distractions and the, the ironing pile and the, I've taught myself that, Carrie, it's not about place, it's about time. It's just about carving out the time. But I've also learned about myself that I need to write in the morning. I'm not a, a an evening-night person. I've already switched off mentally by then. So I try and get three or four out, good hours of the morning, then go off and do something else, go for a walk, go, get some groceries. And then if I'm lucky and I'm in the flow, I might come back and do another couple of hours or revise in the afternoon but yeah, I and I also make sure, and I think Pip Williams recently spoke about this too, and I love the way she put it about having a word count each day of one. I have a similar thing where I think you, you have to touch the work every day. You just, it's like a marriage. You need to give it some love every day, even if it's just a little bit. And even if it's 
sometimes not even particularly authentic. Just kidding. I just think that if I spend too long away from looking at it, self-doubt creeps in. So momentum is really important to me. And I used to test myself with thousand word counts a day, but I don't anymore. I do keep a book by my side that I write my daily word count in. I don't know, that for some reason is visually important to me. So even if it's a day where the flow isn't happening and I just write a hundred words, I still write down a hundred words on my little notebook because there's something, it triggers something in me that says, Carrie, you're still moving moving forward. And this is a game of inches. Oh, it sure is. You also went on a two-week residency quite at the beginning of writing this novel, writing storylines. I was just, I've never been on a residency. I can't even imagine being allowed to go anywhere for two weeks without the family hollering at me about where's mm. the two weeks worth of meals it's a big <laughs> chunk of time like how what what was the fantastic thing about it did you have to deal with guilt about sneaking for away sure. and doing something that was for you and you only oh yeah so much guilt motherhood is just one long guilt trip isn't it but as they're getting older now they're in their late teens I was able to wrestle with my guilt enough to say I'm going to do this So that that residency was in the Perth Hills. And that's the other thing. It was if I needed to jump in the car and come home, I could, and I did. However, I was really surprised at just how much I wrote in that I had no expectations. I also thought it could possibly be a giant waste of time and that I might stare at a wall for two weeks because I wasn't around my usual things and I I didn't know how it would go. And it was amazing. It was transformative and it was I got 10,000 words written, which is a lot for me because I am a slow writer, and it broke the back of the start of the novel, which is the hardest time for me. That is when self-doubt is at its highest. That's when I'm most likely to just go, this is rubbish, abandon, start something new. So when you break the back of it like that and you get that 10,000 words is done quickly, I think that was critical to the second book getting written. And it so much so that I set myself up for the same experience with, with my next book, which I'm working on now. I applied for a Varuna residency last year and was lucky enough to get it. And I knew, and I timed it. So I saved starting a new, my new work for that residency because I knew that if things all lined up again, that I would be writing 10,000 words at least for two solid weeks and that it would break the back of the start of a new work and that's exactly what happened. I recently did that at Varuna. It was like a dream come true for me. That has always been my Narnia, Varuna. I spent the first part of every day just going, oh, my God, I'm here. (laughs) But it's also the camaraderie as well, isn't it? It's not like just to have the freedom to and not have to cook and but to have to sit around at the dinner table and talk to people who don't go, oh, my God, you're talking about writing again. (laughs) To the point where I realised from that experience that because the other residency I did was completely alone, I was in a log cabin by myself in the bush, I was waiting to be murdered most nights, no one would have heard. But this one is you're all in the same house in Varuna and I suddenly thought, oh, my gosh, this is what what I've never had in my writing experience. I've treated it like this really solitary endeavour that it's just me in my headspace all the time. And when I came back from Varuna, I contacted a friend who's part of a writing group and said to her, is there any space? Could I maybe come along? And she said, of course. So now I'm in a writing group about five years too late Um, because I realised that that camaraderie, especially with other people trying to work on stories and grappling with the structure and character, they're great conversations. So interesting. I always think it's a strange experience, that gap between 
when they go, it's gone to the printers and you can't fiddle with it anymore. Mm. And then when it actually becomes a real book that's in a bookstore. And I also was thinking about you're in Perth and I've always got the impression from my WA writing friends that it's a very supportive community in Mm. Western Australia. But I also wonder how the publicity and marketing that's unfolding now for you around the book, how different is it for a Western Australian-based writer, which is for is on the other side of the country from mm. the majority of the population? And how does that work when you're a WA well, I, person? Yeah, I think it can be, like, I'll be honest, it probably is a, a little bit disadvantageous to be over here. While it is a really supportive writing and reading community it is small and we are isolated and so I can sell my book to all my friends and family over here but that's only ever going to achieve so much so you do need to be cracking the east coast as well and my publicist is working very hard to do that but it it's a numbers game it's a very expensive flight over there so she can't it I did say, look, I'll make myself available for events over east. And initially that that was the answer to that was we'll see. So I think it was like, we'll see how early reception is. And I have now been, because some early reviews for the book were good, I thankfully, I have now been able to secure an event in Brisbane. And I know that will make a big difference. I would like to do more events over east, but it's a it's a numbers game. I, I'm not a I'm not. Pitt Williams and I'm not Leanne Moriarty. You can't line up those things with confidence. I'm still very much an, a new author and each book is a, a, a speculative thing. Yes, events would over East would be very helpful. The other thing is we now live in a very shrunken media landscape. So even when Harvey Bean came out, there were five years ago, there were far more outlets for getting a book written up in a magazine or newspaper than there are even five years later. We've got one newspaper in Perth, one, wow. and which is a tragedy. So that's it for publicity in Perth in terms of media. So it is hard, but having said that, I wouldn't live anywhere else. I love These days I love Perth, and the great thing is that when people come to visit you, they you really know they want to visit you because <laughs> <laughs> it's a bloody long way. It is, a, comparatively. And so I guess... What's your relationship then as a former journalist? You've received millions of press releases in your career. What's your relationship with publicity as a writer, as an author? I have a look, I still write media releases every day. So that's part of my day job at the moment is I work at a university and I'm writing media releases about research all the time. So I have a great respect for the power of a media, a well-written media release. And I therefore trust my publicist implicitly. She's doing an amazing job and she's getting as much yield as she can. And the rest is about whether or not the book is good enough to be picked up by by readers and pressed into each other's hands. Publicity can only ever do so much. It's a fantastic thing, but um, you, you can't spin something that's just not good. So, I, think, I think books are about word of mouth ultimately oh, and, yeah. and none of us have any control over that, even book talk. Yeah, I don't know. I have, I have not attempted TikTok or TikTok. Oh, or I'm way too old to be on TikTok. <laughs> I can't do another platform. I can't. I've been shedding them, not too... get, getting them. 
Yeah, me too. It's been such a delight talking to you. Thank you so much, Carrie Gotts, for spending some time with us today on the Convo Couch. Congratulations on Storyline. I'm a big fan of that book and am pressing it into people's hands. It's such an uplifting novel with lots of heart and humour and wonderful characters. And it's it's just been a real pleasure to talk to you about that book and your process and your background for the listeners out there you can find out more about carrie you can find her on instagram speaking of platforms she's at carry on 13 and storylines of course is available from your local libraries and your favorite bookstores thank you so much carrie oh thank you meredith thanks very much Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.